0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis
1: and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as
0: well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live.
1: We're delighted to welcome you to the launch of the Heritage Foundation's 2022 Index of U.S.
0: Military Strength. Please welcome our host, Tom Spore, Director of the Heritage Foundation Center for National Defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us today, both online and those that are gathered here in the auditorium. Welcome to our event commemorating the release of the 2022 Index of U.S. Military Strength, our eighth such edition of this document, and our goal is still the same as it has been from the start to provide both leaders and the American public a premier, open source, authoritative assessment of America's armed forces and their ability to protect the nation. And although I am admittedly biased, I believe we have succeeded in in that endeavor once again this year. This year's index contains a number of enhancements over previous editions, including a chapter on military cyber, an expanded assessment of the new Space Force, four outstanding essays on risk and dozens of new graphics that help explain and, and demonstrate the state of U.S. national defense. The index is extensively footnoted and based on sources such as congressional testimony, official budget documents, and statements from officials in the Pentagon. The index provides policymakers the facts and the data they need to assess U.S. the military and its ability to carry out the national strategy. To celebrate this event, we are honored to have Congressman Mike Rogers to provide keynote remarks. A native of Alabama, Congressman Rogers has served on a number of committees, but most significantly now serves as the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, a role where he is in a unique position to influence the course of national defense. Representing Alabama's 3rd District since 2002, Representative Rogers has been a strong and consistent advocate for the American military and its national defense. We are very grateful for the opportunity to hear from him this morning. For those of you of us joining virtually, and I think there's at least 400 of them, there's an opportunity to ask questions as well as audience <laughs> members here. And so I encourage you as we're, as we're going through this morning's event to enter questions in the webinar question box, and we'll get to as many as, of those as we can. But at this time, it's now my pleasure to welcome and welcome Congressman Mike Rogers to the stage.
2: I can tell there's a bunch of good Baptists in the room because you're all sitting in the back. <laughs> no offense, it's the sinners that sit up front because they want to make sure they're seen. But the uh, Alabama, we consider the good Baptists in the back. That's where I always sit. Uh, it's good to be back at Heritage. It's been a, a number of years since I've uh, been able to be here, and, and this is a new room. It's really nice, and y'all, y'all done well. Um, and I want to thank Tom uh, uh, Spower for inviting me and hosting me today. The 2022 index of U.S. military strength could not have come at a better time. As a policymaker, I rely on the insights of experts such as the scholars here at Heritage. By putting out the index, I can contemplate what some of the best thinkers have to say about the U.S. military. I'm constantly looking for conservative insights into how Congress can further strengthen our national defense. And I want to thank you all for your hard work on the index. Uh, Please know that the work you produce will help shape the policy that I will put forward and the oversight that I will conduct as chairman of the House Armed Services Committee after next November. Uh, But until that time, I'm still going through the process. uh, uh, I'm still going to press forward uh, with oversight of this administration. What we saw in Afghanistan last August was a disaster. The decisions made by the civilian leadership, of this administration resulted in the deaths of 13 service members, yet President Biden has accepted no responsibility nor held anyone responsible for that disaster. Not Secretary Blinken and not National Security Advisor, not to mention himself. The men and women of the military executed their mission given by civilians. We are proud of what the military accomplished, but civilian politicians made decisions that were... uh, that we need to know why they made and uh, who made them. We already know that President Biden lied to the American people about the advice that was given him by the military leadership. General McKenzie testified that he and General Miller advised the president to keep troops in Afghanistan at the 2,500 level uh, that we had going into the event. Uh, This is not what President Biden told the American people in the interview with George Stephanopoulos on ABC News. The American people also need to know why Biden continued to move forward when conditions on the ground were deteriorating. Further, we need to know how many Americans are left behind in Afghanistan by this administration. Secretary Blinken keep tell, keeps telling us it's around 100 people, but it's been that number now for two months, and we know that dozens of Americans are getting out of Afghanistan every day. So the numbers don't add up. Uh, we'll get to the bottom of this, and the answers, we'll get the answers for the American people. Uh, But now I want to talk a little bit about terrorism. Policymakers cannot allow Afghanistan to return uh, as a safe haven for terrorists. The Taliban are not a new Taliban. They are the same Taliban that kills women and children and men for minor infractions. Uh, They've already released thousands of hardened terrorists from prisons. To think this administration somehow sees them as different is ridiculous and reflects a dangerous view of the world. According to the latest intelligence assessment, it could be less than 12 months before al-Qaeda will use Afghanistan as a base to conduct strikes against America. Think about that. This is how 9-11 happened in 2001. We did not have eyes and ears in Afghanistan to see the training that was going on in the attack that came to our country from that nation. This administration claims they have over-the-horizon abilities to confront terrorists in Afghanistan, and I don't believe them. Two over-the-horizon strikes in uh, in August were failures. Our human intelligence capability is gone. The ability to find a target, track that target, and execute a successful strike is now severely limited. Uh, We are also relying on Pakistan to allow us to fly over their land into Afghanistan. And I worry about what kind of deals this administration will cut with that country to maintain that ability to fly over, if we can keep that ability. Uh, But once it's closed, we will have no ability to access Afghanistan with current uh, air domain platforms. Now, what this administration did in Afghanistan did not happen in a vacuum. It has major implications for other reasons, especially China. No doubt the Chinese found the actions by this administration in Afghanistan instructive. We know the CCP is constantly studying our actions and looking for weaknesses. They may rightly assume that this president does not want to confront the growing threat from China. Until he shows otherwise, the Chinese will continue to threaten Taiwan. They will continue their illegal activity in the South China Sea. And they will expand their footprint across the globe with Belt and Road and other basing initiatives. China is in the middle of an unprecedented military modernization. I fear they've leapfrogged us in many advanced technologies like AI and quantum computing. We know they've done so with hypersonics. The press is reporting China's recent successful test of a nuclear-capable orbital hypersonic attack vehicle. Meanwhile, we've poured money into systems that won't last minutes in a conflict with China. Space-based platforms, unmanned assets, and more distributed logistics capabilities are essential to deterring China. And I'm happy this year's NDAA reflects some of those key investment areas. We'll talk a little bit about the nuclear posture review. The NDAA also continues critical investment in our nuclear modernization. Right now, we await the Biden nuclear posture review. We know a number of things should influence their decision-making. Both Russia and China are rapidly expanding and diversifying the size and scope of their nuclear warhead stockpiles and delivery systems. Russia has approximately a 10 to 1 advantage over the US in tactical nuclear weapons. Putin is nearly complete with his nuclear modernization program, cutting across all three legs of the triad. The Kremlin also has nuclear-tipped missile defense interceptors that are around Moscow. China is undergoing a crash nuclear program that in many ways is unprecedented, as it sprints for a degree of parity with the U.S. and Russia. Open source imagery has identified three new Chinese ICBM fields. They are in addition to the road mobile ICBMs that we already knew they had. The Chinese are likely to quadruple the number of their warheads to 1,200 over the next decade. Both Russia and China are are conducting dangerous nuclear yield-producing tests to assist with their programs. The U.S., on the other hand, is just getting started with our own nuclear modernization program. I worry that the blame America first crowd in the Biden administration overseeing the nuclear posture review will make some dangerous decisions. They talk about, quote, reducing the role of nuclear weapons, close quote, and cutting the budget of the nuclear triad uh, or U.S. defenses. They must not interfere with our current nuclear modernization program or record. They cannot get rid of the land leg of the triad or the dangerous sole purpose nuclear declaratory policy. Uh, The earlier attempt to cancel our new sea-based launch cruise missile was a mistake. As the ranking member, I will not allow this administration to weaken our security by cutting our nuclear forces. American Strategic Forces balances the world in our favor. We have US allies coming to the Congress asking us to prevent any changes to that balance. Recently, the UK defense minister came out and publicly opposed a dangerous shift to a, quote, sole purpose nuclear declaratory process or policy. Our nuclear arsenals keep the world safe. Our allies know this. Our enemies must know that our arsenal is not a paper tiger. Any change to our posture affects the world. Like most Americans, I want the balance to be in our favor. In conclusion, I want to uh, acknowledge the dedication and professionalism of our uh, men and women in uniform. They perform tasks and missions to promote freedom and democracy throughout the world. Without a doubt, the United States military is the greatest force of good in the world that we've ever seen. And I thank you for allowing me to be with you. And I'm happy to take questions. If I get any tough ones, Tom's going to handle them. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think his microphone was working. I all didn't hear. He was asking about the space force if it's progressing at a at a quick enough pace to be able to keep pace with what our adversaries are doing. Uh, and I, and I do think it is. I would I would have preferred that we had established the space force a couple of years earlier than we did. Uh, and the reason we started the process is we found that we were uh, allowing our adversaries to become Peers, not near peers, but peers in space, and and we heavily rely on space assets uh, to fight and win wars, just like we heavily rely, rely on satellites for our daily lives, uh, commercially and individually. Uh, but we intentionally are moving, are developing the space force in a layered effort over a five or six year period. So yeah, it's it's right on pace with what we expected, and and I expect us to as it matures to continue to put more and more money in uh, what they're developing both offensively and defensively. So uh, I'm pretty pleased with where we are there. I would like to be pacing that well in other areas. What else? Yes, ma'am.
1: Thank you so much. Oh, it's working. (laughs) Um, Christina Wong with Breitbart News, thank you so much for uh, speaking today. Uh, Heritage published a piece yesterday expressing concern over um, military recruiting difficulties. Is this something that you're concerned about, and especially given what happened in Afghanistan and other administration policies, do you think that that could have an effect on recruiting young Americans today? Thank you.
2: Yeah. uh, I feel very strongly about our professional military and keeping it a professional military, and, uh, and I am worried. Uh, one of the things that Adam, uh, the chairman, Adam Smith and I have been talking about uh, and we intend to, to lean into in this next year is significantly increasing compensation and benefits packages, particularly for enlisted personnel, uh, we want to maintain a professional military, and we need to compensate them as professionals. And, uh, and we aren't doing that right now, particularly in the enlisted ranks. So you're going to see us making some efforts to, to, to address some of those concerns. But yeah, you know, I have, if you watch my questioning in the recent hearings that we had about Afghanistan, And and, and if you read any of my comments from interviews, I have been vigorous in my defense of the military's role in Afghanistan because the decisions that turned that into the disaster it was made were civilian political decisions. Uh, We would have had a much smoother withdrawal process if they had just listened to the members of leadership of Congress. And it was not Republicans. It was the Democrats were more vocal than we were. About it because they knew they owned the, the, both chambers of the Congress and uh, and the White House, and they would own it if it was a disaster. And sure enough, it was. We were advising the administration for the three or four months before the withdrawal that you know, aside from whether you should stay or not, I personally felt like we should have stayed at, at our level of twenty five hundred American troops sub, supplemented by seventy five hundred coalition troops, roughly six thousand contractors. The Afghan army would have been fine. As long as we had that presence there, and they would have been doing the fighting, not us. But anyone listen, and, and that's fine. That's that's the president's decision. But we were we were doing it, urging them to do two things: go slower till we get them out right, and let's keep at least one base somewhere in Afghanistan. We had, I think, seven or eight air bases. Didn't have to be Bagram, but we needed some place to do ISR. For, counterterrorism purposes. And the administration wouldn't listen to anything from anybody. Uh, That's one of the reasons I'm so angry, they were reckless. And then you have people like uh, the National Security Advisor for the administration blaming the military for making the decision to close Bagram. And and for those of you who aren't familiar, Bagram is a very big base with two very long airstrips, which any kind of planes can land on. We could have use that as a very effective way to to transport not only American citizens, but SIVs out of the country uh, without having to go through the the more urban Kabul airport. But it was the administration who said, no, you have to go to 650 uh, troop, no more than 650 on the way to zero. And your number one priority has to be to protect the embassy in Kabul and the airport in Kabul. You can you can't do that, with you can't keep that and Bagram with 650 troops. when I mean, We had 2,000 people doing it before. So um, they made the decision that forced us to just use the Kabul airport, um, and which then ultimately re- resulted in us having to send an extra 5,000 troops in there just to secure that. So it was reckless political decisions, and I refused to let the military be blamed for that. Uh, the military did the best they could with the, the the decisions that were made, and I worry about the the effect that it's going to have on people wanting to go in the service when they get blamed for when things go bad, and it's politicians who made the decisions that caused it. As a longer answer than you wanted, but it stirred me up. What else?
3: I've got a question for you, um, Representative Rogers. Um, this is online. Uh, Is it true the Obama administration defunded the hypersonic program? And if so, uh, how does the United States begin to recover and catch up with the Chinese?
2: Well, I wouldn't say directly. They indirectly did by decreasing defense spending uh, over every year that they were there, and that that has an impact. Um, But we're having to double up now. I mean, the, the threat's coming, and I'm just talking about open source stuff. I'm not talking about anything classified. The reported capabilities of both China and Russian hypersonics are very alarming, and they lit a fire under us starting last year. And so we have had increased funding. Uh, now this is going to be the fourth consecutive year, even though the president gave us a number that was a cut. Uh, both the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee plus that up by $25 billion. Uh, I expect the appropriators to, to come pretty close to funding that amount, and that's going to enable us to do some some catching up. It's not going to happen immediately, but there's some classified stuff that's going on that's really exciting that I think is going to put us back in a good place really soon. But we should never let ourselves get behind, and that wouldn't have happened if defense spending hadn't been cut year over year under the, the Obama administration. Congressman uh, John Rosamondo, I'm the Senior Defense Analyst for at the Center for Security Policy. I've been uh, conducting uh, conversations with the National Resistance Front in Afghanistan, and I was wondering if there's anything that you know, Congress can do to, uh, to support them
1: because they're uh, undertaking uh, a guerrilla operation against the Taliban to uh, maybe try to... Co- Uh, make up for some of the mistakes. Because when you
2: think back to the 1980s, it was Congress that uh, pushed the arming of uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud and his uh, fighters. And these people, uh, you know, they're dying and uh, they share our values. So what can we do to uh, help them out? Unfortunately, the only thing that we can do as members of Congress between now and and the, the end of next year is to apply pressure to this administration Uh, This Democrat-controlled Congress is not going to move legislative uh, initiatives through that will force the administration to do anything different than they're doing, Uh, and that's unfortunate. But those of us uh, in Congress can publicly put pressure on the administration to do more because it was their reckless decisions that got us into this mess.
3: Answer another question online, and it has to do with the uh, uh, the nuclear modernization program of the Chinese. You mentioned the three fields uh, that have been recently discovered uh, for uh, uh, SLBMs or uh, ground uh, ground launched uh, uh, strategic weapons. Um, how um, how does the United States respond to uh, the growth of China effectively? Is there uh, something we do beyond the modernization program that's currently being proposed?
2: That's a great question, and the answer is yes, and it has to be beyond the modernization. We are going to modernize our weapons. The the great news is um, that we have not allowed the the proposal by the president to, to affect our determination to go forward with our modernization effort, but there's more in that we have to recognize what China is doing globally to position themselves for military superiority. I talked about the Belt and Road Initiative. They have a 50-year plan that is pretty incredible uh, of making strategic moves around the, the globe to make themselves uh, more prominent than us or more capable of us in those regions. We've got to do the same thing. you know. And I just give one example, a couple examples. Our hemisphere, with both Central and South America, if you look at what China's doing, in South America alone, there's 110 different uh, initiatives that they're partnering with those countries down there for infrastructure of various types that not only will help them have more control over those countries economically, but will give them military uh, capabilities as well. They're doing the same thing in Central America. They're doing the same thing on the, on, on the African continent. We can't allow that to go unchecked. We are going to have to make the same kind of investments in those regions or we will be at a great disadvantage 30 years from now in a conflict. We cannot ignore that. And, and I, I personally think you know, that, uh, that it would just be responsible for us at a minimum to deal with our own hemisphere and have a, a kind of a more contemporary Marshall Plan for South and Central America uh, simply because it's our back door. And, and uh, you know, we have seemed to forget that there's the Monroe Doctrine that should be being enforced in there. And we're not. You know, you look at what Russia is doing in Venezuela alone. Uh, we have to be able to protect our backyard. But I do care about what's happening globally. You know, when you look at the Arctic, uh, we now have melting ice up there that's opening up vast reserves of, of natural resources that, We need to be competing for We can't just cede those to China and Russia, and they are making a a move for it. So uh, to answer your question, there's a lot of global activity that we have to recognize as the world's sole superpower. We better get in the race or we will lose the race. Anything else?
3: Yes, sir. Mike Lim with the Washington Times. I'm going to get back to the index itself. When you uh, read that Heritage uh, rates so much of the military as weak or marginal, um, as, as an important member of, uh, of, of the House, what's your take and what needs to be done to, to boost that score
2: back up next year or the year beyond? That's a great question. And I, and I talk about this constantly. People have to remember we've been through two decades of war. And we've worn everything we've got out, including manpower. So we have to go through the process of repairing imp- capabilities, you know, platforms, uh, enhancing end strength. You heard me talk about the recruiting issues. We need to make sure that we always have a professional military that's vibrant and, and is uh, capable. But we can't lose sight of the fact that, tr- that taking us from a worn-out military to a military prepared for fights of the future happens in one or two years. Uh, One of the reasons why the National Defense Strategy Commission recommended 3 to 5% increases in defense spending for the foreseeable future is you're looking at at least a decade for us to be able to not only repair and replace, but modernize and prepare for the wars of the future. The Space Force was just the first major initiative. Uh, cyber is the the other warfighting domain that we are now turning a lot of attention to. A lot of people weren't paying attention to the fact that space had become a warfighting domain. They need it now. Uh, cyber is a warfighting domain that you don't have to be a major player to be impactful in in that domain. North Korea, as small as they are, can become a significant adver- adversary in that domain. We've got a lot to do a- a there. Unmanned platforms, that is the future. I mean, you're already starting to see it, but we have to make a lot of investments in unmanned platforms and artificial intelligence. Uh, Those things are going to take several more years, and we're going to have to go through the process not only of investing in those and developing those technologies, but getting the culture to change. Because in order to invest in those new capabilities, we have to release some platforms that are legacy platforms and are dated and not not necessary and that's a political problem we've got to get members to turn loose and and forget about parochial interest Uh, and we've got to get the industrial base to stop worrying about protecting their industrial parochial perspectives because what i keep telling the members and i keep telling the industrial players partners is we don't build anything we pay you to build things so if we if we release a legacy platform that's really not going to be relevant in the future wars, future conflicts, and we go to something else, it's the same six or seven major primes that are going to build those things, and there's more than enough to go around. So we are going to have to culturally kind of change the way we think of things in Congress and in the private sector as we make a change to, to uh, these new warfighting capabilities because the fact is, wars in the future are going to look a lot different than wars in the past. Um, and I don't think, I think as we go forward, uh, you're going to see a lot of, of uh, a different kind of folks going into the services, like the Space Force. You know, those folks are not going to be carrying a gun on the battlefield. They're sitting at a computer terminal doing some really high-tech stuff. Uh, so we're the, one of the things the services are doing, and I'll, this is the last pig trail I'll go down, but. It, it goes back to this lady's question a little while ago uh, about recruiting. Some of these capabilities, like the Space Force, we don't need people necessarily going through boot camp uh, to learn how to carry a, a backpack and a rifle. We need some kid who's really good at, at computer technology or mathematics or whatever being able to come in and work for us and in, in directing those satellites or engineering those satellites or whatever and one of the things Jay Raymond is, uh, is looking at, the, the Chief of Space Operations, is allowing members of the service who get to a certain career point where if they go private, they can make a lot of money, and their kids are about to go to college, you know, and they need to do some things. But they would love to know they could come back in every once in a while and work for a year or so. So we're looking at possibilities of allowing people in the private sector to come in and do a one-year stint as an officer in, in some technical job, and was, or maybe two years, and then go back out and make some money, but be able to come in and, and us be able to draw on their private sector expertise and benefit it from in the, in the military. So there's a lot of neat things that are being discussed in the future. You know, you've probably heard us talk about the Digital Service Academy for the, not only the military, but federal employees to, to develop cyber and artificial intelligence capabilities. So we're looking at a lot of neat things that are very different from the way we fought wars in the future, all those things are going to take several more years, and they're going to take continued investments of 3 to 4% increases in, in defense spending until we, we achieve that capability. And with that, Tom, I think I'm done. Yes, Thank sir. you all.
1: Thank you very much, sir. Appreciate those remarks. Appreciate your leadership in Congress on these issues. It could not be uh, more important. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that, those were outstanding remarks. We are now going to follow that up Uh, with a briefing by Mr. Dakota Wood, our senior fellow for defense programs, Um, and he's going to provide you an overview of the index. Uh, Dakota Wood served for over two decades here in the uh, Marine Corps, and then at the Heritage Foundation, his research focuses on the programs, capabilities, operational concepts uh, of the Department of Defense. Dakota has served as the editor Uh, of the index for each of the eight editions so he's in a position to discern trends and where the things are going and so he's going to give us a presentation of what he has distilled out of of over the 600 plus pages in the index uh, recognizing that a lot has happened and so this is just going to be a wave top kind of summary but as always we are available here at the heritage foundation for your questions and follow-up so without further ado dakota wood
0: It's always great to have a warm introduction by your boss, so I appreciate Tom doing that. Uh, as he mentioned, this is very much a wave top overview. It, uh, it's a document uh, we put together here in the index, uh, over 20, or almost 2,300 footnotes. So, if you're an, uh, you know, an academic geek and appreciate the research that that represents, um, it's authoritative. It's deep and it's a uh, detail, and we just wouldn't even attempt uh, to get into a lot of that. But we did want to cover some of these major trends, and hopefully, this is a prompt. Uh, for anyone to go to the website heritage.org slash military and look at any one of the sections. It isn't meant to be read from front to back uh, in all of its 600-page uh, glory. You go to the section on the Army or you go to the section on Iran or ballistic missile defense a- and get the information that you're looking for. So we, we mean for this to be a resource for the American public. Uh, one of the criticisms that we occasionally hear is why would we want to distill everything we know about the condition of the military into an easily referenceable document because aren't we telegraphing to our competitors or enemies the state of affairs i guarantee you that they're good at espionage they've got national intelligence services that don't do anything but this sort of thing so it seems that the only people who aren't aware of these details uh, are tax-paying american citizens uh, that vote for representatives in congress and we also provide this uh, to the pentagon good feedback that they do use it as a reference And to uh, members of Congress and their staffs who really make these decisions about what we're gonna spend money on and how we're gonna spend that money and what programs we fund. So without further ado, the uh, basic line up front is um, we think uh, our military is marginally capable of fulfilling its mission. This is not an indictment in any way of the men and women who serve in the military. In fact, it really emphasizes uh, the strength of what they do. You know, If you've got old equipment and not enough units or ships and you're still carrying out those functions... You know, what a testament to their uh, dedication and discipline. What we talk about in terms of the marginal capabilities or a weak service is that it's not big enough or the equipment that it has is too old uh, to keep pace with the uh, developments of our uh, adversaries and competitors around the world. So on a scale of one to five, one being very weak, five being very strong, we give it a middling score of three and we'll get into uh, some discussion about why that's the case. Uh, We're going to make this presentation available uh, in our thank you notes out via email to those that are participating online, and we'll post it to the website as well, so don't try to read all the tiny print, but it just talks about the depth and the breadth uh, that we have assembled, uh, its popularity, and the number of people who go to view it, and um, all the major programs, et cetera, that we address in there. If you're interested about old airplanes, how old they are, and new airplanes coming in, whether those programs are healthy. We get into all that detail. We also see this as a mechanism to educate the public on various topics. And as uh, mentioned by Representative Rogers, we have four excellent essays to talk about risk. Uh, In testimony, a service official goes before Congress. A member of Congress says, well, what if you don't get all the things you're asking for? And the service chief says, we'll be operating at risk. Well, what the heck does that mean? What does risk really mean? So we asked some noted authors to address risk in various areas. How do you balance risk between current force and future force? How do we think about risk in dealing with China? Uh, What does risk mean in our nuclear enterprise, nuclear portfolio? And then what does risk mean when we start having the military look at things other than warfare? So if a priority is combating climate change, uh, that's going to take up time, resources, attention, and it has to come from some place probably coming from how do you actually win in the next war against a major competitor. So these are essays or topical on risk, Previous essays have addressed warfighting domains like space and undersea and these sorts of things. So these are meant to be standalone things that have longevity, and they just explain an area of military affairs to someone who is interested but maybe isn't conversant in that particular topic. I mentioned program assessments. Uh, We've got a lot of equipment in the military. A lot of it is very old, and so you often hear about new programs coming in. Well, what is the age and the status of the old thing, you know the old truck or the old plane or the old ship? What is the status of the new item that's supposed to be coming in? Is that a healthy program? Is it going to replace it in sufficient quantity or not? And we go over one hundred and twenty major defense programs that give the, the u s. military the wherewithal. Uh, to uh, to do its job. So the Index of uh, U.S. Military Strength uh, provides this in an easily referenceable way, and we don't know of any other resource uh, out there globally uh, that provides this sort of information. So very proud of that, and the effort goes into it. Uh, this is meant to talk about this next slide, is how do you think about military power? So again, I really appreciate Representative Rogers talking about you have a military to do certain things, but how that is used and the nature in which it is used are always political decisions. But if you don't have a modern, capable military of sufficient size, then you have removed that option from decision-makers. So if something happens in the world that threatens the U.S. interest, and the president wants to address that in some way, if he has a small military possessed of very old equipment, well, you don't have many options available. Right? So it incentivizes bad behavior by competitors. It doesn't reassure your allies very much. And it usually puts things important to the uh, United States at risk. So really this was to help somebody kind of think through, how do you think about uh, military power? And it is infused throughout the uh, military index and in why we reach uh, certain assessments that we do regarding services. This is just an assessment slide here to talk about the major areas. If you have a national interest and it is at risk in some way or it's being threatened and you want to send your military out to address that, in addition to diplomatic and economic initiatives, all it has to go out into the world to do that. Right? You have to cross major oceans. So is the world, as an operating environment, an easy place to work in, or is it very challenging and difficult? And so we looked at each of these three key regions, Europe, the Middle East, and the Indo-Pacific uh, regions, where this intersection of very capable competitors and enduring, very profound U.S. national interests uh, uh, coincide. And in general, we find that, yes, we have military presence in these regions. We have strong alliances, even if some of our partners aren't very militarily capable, to put it kindly. Um, But we have experience, and and there is modern infrastructure that we can work with. Some political instability, some infighting amongst our partners, uh, to be sure. Certainly the Middle East is fraught with various challenges. But in general... If the United States needed to go somewhere, we have familiarity and an ability to do that. So it's a pretty, a pretty friendly uh, sort of operating space. When you look at threats, uh, boy, they're high. Uh, the representative uh, mentioned, Representative Rogers mentioned the pace of development and investment by our major competitors in cyber and artificial intelligence and hypervelocity platforms. Very modern air forces, Uh, China's going to town on on having built an ocean-going navy. So um, the the intent behind uh, a particular country can be manifested or seen in its behavior, how are our major competitors behaving, and behind their words and actions, do they really have physical capabilities to make good on threats? you know to follow up the rhetoric with some reality and combat power and it's it's pretty much yes across the board. if you look at developments in North Korea and Iran with ballistic missile technologies and Russia and China, what they're doing, uh, heated rhetoric very capable militaries, and so we think that the threat to U.S. interests is high in that regard. And I have talked a little bit about the military, and we'll get into some detail about its status. It's not very, very weak. It's not very, very strong. It's in kind of that middle category. And we use the word marginal intentionally as opposed to good enough. Good enough would say that, well, it's good enough, so what do we need to be worried about? Marginal kind of conveys its sense that, well, it can probably do the job, Uh, But you're operating at a bit of risk. You're kind of on that cusp of fulfilling its obligations as the United States military uh, to defend and secure U.S. national interests. So it's marginally capable of doing what it needs to do, and we'll get into some of those details here in just a bit. Uh, I, I wanted to highlight these graphics. We've got 56 uh, of these in addition to all the various tables to talk about programs and such and scoring, but a graphic can be very powerful in taking a lot of text Almost 235,000 words in this index over at 600 pages. But if you can take a lot of that, that prose information and convey it in a picture that's easily shared, we really spend a lot of time with our graphics team to convey this. So here's a picture of Europe and U.S. presence. 76,000 U.S. troops in Europe might seem a lot, but during the Cold War when we had the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, it was up around 300,000 or so. We've got two Army brigades that are on deck there. We've got a few number of uh, Air Force uh, squadrons, some ships that ply the waters of the Mediterranean and go out of ports in Italy and Spain and elsewhere. But when you look at what your competitor might be doing, and especially the level to which a lot of our NATO partners have dropped relative to Cold War days. Uh, this force presence in Europe uh, oftentimes doesn't seem to be enough to really convey the sense of assuring allies and deterring bad behavior. Uh, this has to do with China, but again, it's another representative graphic. It's not just Russia and what it's doing in Ukraine and Georgia and in the Baltic Sea and you know very, uh, being very threatening against Lithuania and Latvia and Estonia and others. Right? We have another major competitor. So the Belt and Road Initiative, that was represented by, uh, it was referred to by the, the by the congressman. Um, this is the level of investment made by China in ports and airfields and railroads. So it's not just an assured area where the U.S. can widely go into a deep-water port. If that thing is owned and operated by China, we might have difficulties in the future, and it's something that we should be thinking about as we engage with our partners in Europe and we see what China is doing on a global stage. When you look at spending patterns, perhaps no surprise that those uh, European countries closest to a threatening nation like Russia tend to spend more, of their uh, GDP on defense capabilities, those further away, perhaps less so, and when you look at the nature, of the spread of this spending, uh, the countries that are spending a great percentage of their GDP on their militaries usually have smaller economies and they 're just not that big, and so they mean well and they are very serious about what they 're doing they're not they just can 't contribute as much deployable projectable combat power as perhaps Germany or the United Kingdom or France or Spain should be able to do. So again, it's a comparison of the relevance of spending and where it's at uh, relative to the types of challenges that you're dealing with. As we get into the threat environment, uh, again, some additional slides just to convey. You know, If you're looking at a country like Iran, the largest ballistic missile inventory in the Middle East with missiles capable of reaching over half of Europe. Uh, They are routinely enriching uranium to 20% on the way to 60%, regardless of whatever agreement they might have been uh, party to. And a lot of this is done in deep secret, where they keep inspectors out uh, so they can't uh, report. Uh, Does this lead to potential conflict with uh, Israel? Iranian uh, influence and support and prodding of various terror groups across the Middle East. So it's a very destabilizing influence. And so this graphic kind of captures a lot of pages of writing, uh, but there is more to be seen in the reading of the document, again, all available online at heritage.org military. Uh, when you look at North Korea, a lot of its population on near-starvation diets, and yet the uh, Kim regime is more interested in investing in submarine-launched ballistic missiles, and missiles of various ranges that cover not only the Korean Peninsula, but also range the United States itself. So this little country with a broken economy and its people not doing very well thinks it more important to have nuclear-capable missiles that can range uh, almost all over the globe. Again, another indicator of the seriousness with which our competitors are approaching these issues. And you could do some comparisons with how serious uh, our administration seemed to be on repairing the damage done by uh, 20 years of use of our military and modernizing it at capacity needed for, uh, to secure global interests. Um, this, uh, I think, is a, is a very important picture, again, that, uh, that highlights areas of potential conflict that have nothing to do with the United States. So, we often get self referential. You know, where is the U.S. involved in this? But you can have border disputes between India and China, or territorial disputes between China and Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines and Japan. So, an area of the world where a dispute breaks out into conflict that has nothing to do with the United States per se, would destabilize a region, and because of our relationships with these other countries, we would really be obligated to be involved in some way, if no for other reason than political stability and the economic viability of critical trading partners. So is our military up to the task of responding to these sorts of situations. And it's not just the Indo-Pacific, the same sort of thing could happen in Europe. So when we talk about a two war capable force, it means that we believe that we should have a military that can address a major problem in one part of the world and not have it take the totality of the US military to do that. You still have the ability to deter bad behavior or to ride to the rescue or support of a partner in another part of the world. So another indicator that the world kind of goes on its way regardless of what we might think should be the case, and so we need to be able to deal with that. Uh, Using a slide here from our U.S. Navy section to show if you look at the world that we just talked about with the Middle East and the Indo-Pacific, it takes a long time to get anywhere from the United States. So sailing a Navy ship from the West Coast to the uh, South China Sea takes three weeks of constant steaming. It takes a week and a half to two weeks to get across the Atlantic or into the Mediterranean Ocean. So as we get into the Navy figures, if you look at how many ships you have available and the world in which they would be sailing, Uh, What ports are available? What kind of competitor navy or land-based maritime patrol aircraft or missiles might they be running into? So we often forget about these time-distance factors in the geography of the world as it relates to the utility and the relevance of American military power and what kind of military that we are uh, actually uh, purchasing. This is some of the competitive space that Representative Rogers mentioned. Uh, It's just one example. This has to do with land-based missiles, but you could use the same kind of comparison with ships or aircraft. So when we look at a capability in the US Army, what kind of weapon system has a particular range, and then you look at similar systems being fielded by China and Russia, we are way behind the power curve on this sort of thing. There's more innovation, more variety, more options at various ranges by our competitors, and uh, and it's a great catch-up game for us if you think you're gonna have a fight on land. The same thing is occurring at sea, in the air, and certainly in the uh, cyber and space domains. Another way of thinking about the relevance of uh, different types of power. This, again, has to do with naval power. Um, Oftentimes, you'll hear comparisons that the U.S. Navy uh, has as many carriers as the next uh, countries combined, but only a percentage of that naval capability is available on any one day, and you have to take that and project that abroad. So, with the u.s navy at about 296 ships we'll just round up to 300 if you have a third of that available which it usually is on any given day that's 100 u.s navy warships spread globally whereas when you look at how many ships china has 350 and counting if you add in a chinese coast guard and chinese maritime militia you're up above 600 ships so even on navy ships 350, 360 to 100, uh, you're working at, uh, at a great disadvantage. Uh, with our Navy, of that 100 deployed, only about 60 are deployed into the Indo-Pacific region, so you're at a 6 to 1 disadvantage before a conflict would even start. So is that reassuring allies? Is it deterring bad behavior from uh, competitors Well, looking at the aggression of Russia and China? Perhaps not so much. We likely need another Navy, which is why the index recommends a Navy of at least 400 ships. It's where the Navy would like to get to, but based on testimony from the Chief of Naval Operations at current funding, they won't get beyond about 305 for the next 10 or 15 years at best. So again, it's another graphic that shows a relevant comparison between navies. Our Navy goes against Russia or China. It's only a small percentage of ours against the totality of theirs. So it's again, it's something to keep in mind uh, brought out of the index. There's another way of thinking about differences in power. Whereas if the United States is gonna project power across vast stretches of ocean, you have to have large, capable, multi-purpose ships that can do that. If you're working in coastal waters like China is, you're not going any further than about 300 miles, you can buy smaller ships that are more relevant to that environment, have them in greater quantity, and support that naval power by land-based air and uh, missile systems, where the United States can't do the reverse uh, in a similar fashion. So, by comparing different types of capabilities, it could be aircraft, it could be missiles, it could be land forces, you have to account for the geography and the context within those for which of those forces are being used. And in this context relevant sort of military contest, again, we think the index believes that uh, that we're right, uh, behind. Uh, We need more funding and and systems that are more relevant to the types of wars that you might fight in these various regions. So overall, the threat environment, we believe the nature of the threat is high. Our competitors are making serious investments in these capabilities, and we are lagging in some critical areas. As we talk about U.S. military power, um, many of our services kind of held steady right? But we did see a loss in ground from the Air Force, primarily because of uh, decreasing flight hour programs, you know, how many hours a pilot will spend in the cockpit, and a real challenge on the part of the Air Force to recruit and retain pilots in sufficient numbers that you have enough people to operate the equipment, uh, repair and maintain it, so that you have, again, a combat relevant Air Force. Uh, The Army is... um, knows what it needs to do, but it struggles with adequate funding for its programs. Uh, The Navy is still plagued by uh, backlogs in its maintenance and too few ships. Uh, The Marine Corps knows exactly where it wants to go, and it's making great progress, but making sacrifices along the way, which I'll get to in just a moment. Our nuclear enterprise is a good news story. Bipartisan support in both chambers of commerce to fund the modernization, to look at decrepit infrastructure, Uh, the uh, talent pool, which continues used to age, you need to get more people in with a serious engineering and mathematical skills and so forth, uh, but that's kind of qualified, right? That if funding and the investment isn't maintained, as Representative Rogers mentioned, then that could quickly tip over from being in a strong category to something approaching weak. So I'm going to go into a bit a bit uh, commentary here on each service. For the Army, the index uh, would advocate that we need 50 brigade combat teams. That's based on the historical use of the U.S. Army and major conflicts in every instance Uh, post-World War II. So this isn't just some kind of imaginary figure, it's actually based on real world evidence and the studies of many commissions uh, and uh, academic groups that have looked at this kind of uh, issue and they all come down to about this particular number. 31 of 50 uh, is not a really good news story in terms of numbers, but the Army has really been focusing on trying to make sure that a good percentage of what it has is combat ready. Under testimony, just in the past uh, several months, though, the Army has indicated that because of lack of funding, it can't really uh, train at the level in terms of large units that it would like to, and so it's focusing on the individual soldier and small units, but you're running risk that in the event of a conflict, you would be able to aggregate all these small pieces together and operate effectively in larger command structures. Uh, The ravages of inflation have really uh, hampered the ability of the Army to make progress. Over the last couple of years, it's lost $39 billion in spending power. So, if we're seeing a a relative increase in real funding for the Defense Department by about 1.8 or 2 percent, but inflation is running 3 or 3.5 percent each individual dollar it gets just doesn't buy as much as it does in the past. So it's a challenge that the Army is struggling with, it knows what needs to be done, it's just underfunded to try to fix a lot of those problems. On the Navy, old ships, more than half of the Navy ships are greater than 20 years old it has too few. We talked about this number of how many available ships. Uh, you can't repair ships if you don't have workers and shipyard space in which to bring them in and make these kinds of repairs. And so it just doesn't have what it needs to get out there and secure US interests at such great range. And uh, the little red box I've got there indicates that some of our premier platforms, some of the uh, fast attack submarines, the ballistic missile submarines, and the uh, cruisers Uh, are rapidly approaching the end of their lifespan within 10 uh, years, and uh, the Navy doesn't anticipate any real growth in its Navy for another 15 or 20. So you can see that downward trend, which has remained consistent over the last several uh, issues of the index. On the Air Force, we're a bit puzzled by its investment strategy. It's spending more on research and development to have an Air Force that it would like to have in the 2030s while it's not buying enough of current production aircraft to replace its aging current fleet. So the average age of an Air Force fighter is 30 to 31 years old. Its tanker fleet is in the 60-year-old age range. It's, uh, I think, uh, um, uh, now uh, is eligible for uh, ARPA benefits, right? Um, but uh, it's it's placing its money 15 years down the road, making the bet that those technologies in the world gives it the room. So as long as we don't go to war in the next 15 years, I think we'll probably be okay in air power, but it runs at uh, great risk. Uh, Similarly, on the flight hour program, if you look at the last couple of years, down by 38% on average across all platforms and all pilots so if your pilots aren't flying as much as they should to maintain certifications they really can't get the combat confidence uh, to engage in the types of air operations that you would have to deal with against a major opponent the last 20 years The enemies we've been fighting uh, in the military have been non-state actors. No armies, no navies, no air forces, no anti-air defense systems. And so our pilots, while they've been doing fantastic in supporting ground operations, really haven't had to deal with the type of threat that you would meet for a China or a Russia. You can't get there if you can't fly, you can't fly if you don't have the funding. So again, it comes back to uh, defense budgets. For the Marine Corps, I mentioned that um, they're doing a great reorientation to develop uh, the types of units with very meaningful capabilities that can be distributed um, across a large area, uh, which is necessary if you're going up against something like China and archipelagic waters of the South China Sea. Uh, but you have to have new resources, robots and unmanned systems and naval strike missile and these sorts of things. That takes money. In a world of flat budgets, what they're doing is sacrificing in strengths. They've already given up a full regiment. That's, that's three battalions, uh, dropping from 24 battalions to 21. And the commandant has mentioned that they'll give up another three battalions, dropping down to 18, in order to be able to fund the uh, transformation that's really needed in the service. And they're making good progress on. So it'll be a much smaller Marine Corps dramatically too small from from what we say in the index, uh, but it'll be a capable and ready Marine Corps. So you hope that the small unit can do big things if it's ever called into combat. For our nuclear system, I did mention that a bit, but if you look at this particular graphic that uh, Patty Jane Geller has put together, it talks about the rapid aging of delivery systems across the board, ballistic missile submarines, uh, rocket bodies, uh, bombers. New stuff coming in, but it takes, uh, let's say, the first Columbia-class ballistic missile submarine, which is intended to start replacing the Ohio class, six and a half years to build a single submarine, six and a half years. If you wanted to expand production, you need more welders. It takes five years to train a welder to do the specialized welding. So there is a time component here where you have to maintain consistency in these sorts of investments to field the capabilities that will be dramatically needed here in the next 10 or 15 years with uh, missile defense uh, we've got some pretty good stuff again it's a numbers game we have likely enough that uh, you would be able to deal with a rogue threat It mean like something like North Korea that has significant capabilities in terms of technology and range but not a lot in numbers you know salvo density is low but if you again engage in some kind of a big conflict with a major power with lots of missiles, we just don't have the ability to deal with that. So funding missile defense systems, again, is absolutely critical so we can maintain the United States as some kind of a safe sanctuary at some level and then deployable capabilities so that we can secure interests abroad and reassure allies and hopefully deter uh, competitors. On the space side, I love these two bottom numbers. Government launches nine in the past year, the commercial sector 319. So, capabilities in populating outer space with all sorts of sensors and platforms is exploding in the civilian and commercial sector. The challenge then becomes, for the US Space Force, is who is managing all that, tracking things, seeing not only what the US side, but our European friends, uh, Asian friends, and our competitors are also doing. So the US Space Force has done a masterful job at transitioning responsibilities and support from contributing services, like the Navy and the Air Force and the Army, under one umbrella in the U.S. Space Force, uh, but it doesn't have any control over the vast majority of space assets maintained by the intelligence community and certainly tracking what's going on in the commercial sector. So, In an an ever-growing wave of demands for support and requirements from regional combatant commands, it's just too small. So when we score Space Force Week, it has to do with aging systems that are out in space, these satellites that need to be replaced in numbers, and too few people to manage the workload that that will only uh, increase. It will continue to grow, especially as the commercial sector uh, continues on its way. So in conclusion, what we have here is 30 years of sustained use of our military since the end of the Cold War. We had the happy decade of the 90s where funding was slashed dramatically uh, uh, the industries that produced military uh, equipment were consolidated we have single points of supply which means single points of vulnerability only one plant uh, brings together the f-35 only one plant in ohio makes tanks uh, only one company makes aircraft carriers uh, because it's more efficient Uh, but it's less effective if you had to dramatically increase uh, utilization. The military services or combat experience has been against non-state actors. They're trying to figure out what going back to thinking about real war really means at scale and at range. And unfortunately, our defense budgets just are not keeping pace with this evolving world. So again, this has been a very quick... A lot of talking very fast about a lot of material in the index of U.S. military strength. We encourage everybody to uh, visit it online. Again, each one of these sections you can access individually and download. And We certainly have paper copies for those who have been gracious enough to bless us with their presence here in the auditorium. Uh, We are at the end of the program, so I can't take any questions. But if you do have any, please send them our way. We'll be more than happy to explain uh, in greater detail uh, anything that I have covered today. So we are, again, so honored uh, that you have attended here in person or attended online. Uh, We look forward to continuing conversation. And if there's any way we can help a particular group or organization get a better feel for national defense issues, we're more than happy to support. So thank you all. Appreciate your presence. And God bless.